This episode of Light Source is brought to you by Squarespace.com. For fast, easy publishing of a professional website, check out photographers.squarespace.com slash ls. And when you sign up, use the promo code LS1 to receive a 10% discount. Hi, this is David Hobby from Strobus.com, and you are listening to Light Source. Welcome to episode 65 of LightSource, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, a website introducing photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer with iStockphoto.com. On this episode, we have with us a repeat guest, uh, someone who was on the one of the early shows, episode 20, David Hobby from Strobus.com. Most of you guys in our audience will know who David is. Uh, he publishes a blog at Strobus.com, and he talks about portable strobe lighting and kind of expanded into other lighting techniques as well. He has a, a good wealth of information and uh, shares a bit with us on the show. We also talk about with him his new DVD that he sent Bill and I uh, to check out. I still need to pop mine in the DVD player here, but you got to take a look at it. Yeah, I did. I checked it out. I'm almost all the way through. It's a very fun set of DVDs. Eight hours, man. That, that's a lot. It is. That's a lot uh, of content. That's off to David, man. That's, that's an awful lot of work, and I think he's going to see a lot of rewards for it, though. Cool. Well, before we get too far into it, in the Flickr thread, there was someone that was asking about ideas for gobos, and someone had kind of called it out and said, uh, in the Jerry Day interview, Jerry Day was calling them Kukularis, and I was calling them gobos. And I don't know whether this guy was trying to make fun of me saying that I'm saying it wrong or not, but typically I think what a Kukularis is, is a big sheet uh, that has a pattern cut out of it. And a gobo is typically something that's a lot smaller. I think it's more of a term that was used in uh, in video, especially when you you see like the scenes when someone puts a pair of binoculars up to their eyes and the screen kind of vignettes to look like a binocular to give you that effect. I think that's where the term originally came from. And gobo simply means goes between objects, something like that. I think that sounds right. So that's kind of <laughs> like the two terms are kind of interchangeable. I, I tend to think of a Kukularis as something much, much larger than a Gobo. Hopefully that cleared up some of the confusion. Cuckoos and Gobos. Cuckoos and Gobos. Uh, well, Cookies and Gobos would be the nickname for both of them. There so. you go. The hands assignment. Yeah, man. We I guess we found out how we get to motivate our, our audience. You, you put a prize up. Give something away, buddy. And I think that we have about 20 respondents that have uh, pitched a submission into the hat. So Bill and I will uh, get together with Omnisianos. We'll uh, pick our ones that we were going to pick and uh, we'll pull a random winner from those and make sure we make a note of it on the Flickr forum and post something in the thread. And in the meantime, topic for next month. We're kicking ideas around before the beginning of the show and it seems to be emotion will probably be a good one for June. Yeah, motion's kind of broad enough, but it's still somewhat specific so hopefully we'll get a bunch of responses like we did for hands there's a lot to pick from man it's gonna be hard there is a lot to pick from there are some really good shots i like that people went close in tight on hands far away with hands as the subject and all kinds of different things so it's it's neat seeing what people come up with well it's summertime so we should get some cool outdoor photos or something this time around you would think that we'll uh, we'll have to see what happens. We'll see what comes out of them. Rocking. Well, kind of some stuff going on here with me. Recording the intro has been a little delayed because I have been building a new system. I have been tired of my aging PC. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that I went and got a Mac. <laughs> oh man, I was hoping. 
No, no, no. I went, I went better. I, I went to uh, Vista 64 and I have a quad core processor set up and it, it's pretty cranking. Uh, I was a little nervous going the 64-bit route. It's kind of funny. The morning that I was getting ready to pull the trigger and said, all right, I, I think I have all the pieces. I'm going to actually do the build now. I got an email from Shoot Smarter and one of the articles that was teased in the email said, is Vista ready yet? And I was like, oh, oh. no. <laughs> So I was very hesitant about making the change, but I'm, I'm, everything's moved over now. I'm running everything great. And late room two kicks butt on this system. I bet. So have you crossed this like a million images? Uh, no, because I just got my drives moved over to the, okay. <laughs> I just got my photo drives backed up and moved over to the new box. So I'm, this week is kind of like just launching back into production mode. So, so we'll expect an update for the next show. Yeah, if, if anyone's on my MSN list and they see curse words in my little profile name thing, <laughs> they know what's up. Looking forward to hearing your stories about how that works out for you, because I know a lot of people are still asking that question. At this point, Vista in itself, I think, is probably stable enough to make the move to it. 64-bit is an even bigger question, because right. there's hardware that's not available. I should say this, I did run into an issue with installing Photoshop, because the version I have is CS2. And the way that it worked in Vista 64, there are two program files folder, one for 32-bit apps, one for 64-bit apps. And the installer for CS2, I believe, was built before 64-bit OSs were in existence. So when I tried to put Photoshop in the 32-bit folder, it didn't understand where it was. And it was trying to say, I'm sorry, this, this folder doesn't exist. I have to put it in the standard 64-bit program files folder. When I finally got it installed and I booted it up, it lost where the, all of the license information was. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So, I mean, I had a couple evenings of frustration there trying to figure out what was going on. And I started Googling and finding a lot of people having the same problem. And it wasn't until I went back and I uninstalled it all and I installed it at the C drive slash Adobe. And then everything seemed to be fine. But I hear that um, what I was reading, it seemed that a lot of the newer versions of Photoshop have no problem with it because the software was built when these OSs right. were in existence. So I think it's just a, an issue with, with aging software that I have on a, on a brand new platform that that is very different so so your solution was basically to install to a custom directory yeah well, and at the root outside of either of those two program files folders right okay so that way if it's outside of those it can look inside of the root location easier than having to like back out of another folder and look inside of another one well for the two people that are going to be trying <laughs> to put 64 with cs2 that'll be useful information well, at least the upcoming interview will have useful information for more than two people. Yeah, there we go. Or, or all the <laughs> Mac users can, can tune back in now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you had turned me onto this website. It's called the fstopmag.com. Yeah. Uh, it's this guy, he, he does these text interviews with these really talented photographers. So, I mean, he has this new post up there from Morgan Silk. Uh, this guy is a, an amazing photographer. And some of his images, actually, a lot of his images look like they're pretty much just found work. But he has some amazingly well-processed images that reminds me of a lot of the stuff that we saw with like Tim Tatter or um, David Hill. And I think Tim Tatter had the best de definition of it. He called it that high-def look. Right. And he has this series about these Navy SEALs and he shows like the composite image, the original image, lighting diagrams, and then the final composite. I was just looking at some of these images and was just completely blown away. I was like, wow. I was like, I want to do work like this. I did check out those images and there are some really, really interesting composites there, man. I think it's really cool how he shows the different steps involved. 
that high def look is really cool. I thought it was really interesting how Dim Tatter put that. Like, you know, people are starting to expect that clarity in images. It's definitely a, a trend, if nothing else. I think he nailed it on the head when he said it. We'll put a link to this article in the show notes, but maybe it'll give some people some inspiration because a lot of people are trying to do experiment with this style of lighting. So, Well, as you're saying about inspiration, I just sent you another little quick link to take a look at for inspiration. The blog post is titled Awesome Photo Manipulation Inspiration, and it is from designfeeder.com, F-E-E-D-R.com. What do you think about some of those? Oh, nice. Boy, that looks like a lot of work. That's the first thing I think of is how many hours <laughs> hours are being spent in Photoshop. Wow. The one that really caught me when I was scrolling down the page and I stopped and I looked at it for a while was the first one by Alessandro Bavari. Mm. Um, the pretty girl leaning against the picket fence with her camera phone chimping. Oh, and right. she just shot a photo of aliens coming down to cut some crop circles in. <laughs> it's just like that creativity to produce what is going on in that image is just incredible. I love it. No doubt. There are some really cool shots in there. Well, that's probably uh, enough little research for people to look up and check some stuff out before uh, we get into the interview here. And if you want to check out the site, if you haven't already, the gentleman's name is David Hobby, and he publishes strobus.com. On Light Source this evening, we have with us someone who's, uh, well, his name is synonymous with lighting. Uh, we had him on our show before, episode 20, and we have him back again, uh, David Hobby from strobus.com. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, guys. So it's it's been a little while since we've spoken with you, so we're, we're talking about what? That was probably a year and a half ago, something like that? Something like that. I know it was reasonably soon after I started blogging. Oh, my. So it's been a while. Now your name is synonymous with blogging and lighting. That's a little weird, but... <laughs> <laughs> I actually got recognized in a Chipotle the other day, and that kind of that was like strange. Wow! Uh, I, yeah. I guess it's cool. That is cool. Well, well, I guess that would make you probably the most recognized photographer on uh, on the internet right now. I could safely say I was the most recognized photographer in that Chipotle at that particular time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, for people who are living under a rock, tell everyone a little bit about Strobus and what the website is and what what it does. And and I would assume you could probably keep it brief because uh, I'm sure everyone knows who you are. Well, uh, Strobus is just basically a website that uh, seeks to teach people how to use their flashes off camera, just the little flashes, and in ways to do really cool things like the professionals do. Really summed it up pretty good. <laughs> Sounds like you've done that before. Yeah, I, I'm... yeah a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about how the site has grown and where it's taken you. Um, you started out as a photographer with the Baltimore Sun. Yep. And started blogging, teaching people about using the strobes. And you've been around with uh, some recent videos I've seen you showing up with Chase Jarvis in places like uh, in Seattle. And I believe I saw an Ireland one in Dubai even. Yeah, I, you know, I, the, the, the coolest thing about this has been the ability to get out and travel around the world a little bit and meet some of the people that read the site. And we did just get back. In fact, Chase was out there uh, with me in Dubai a couple of weeks ago, which um, other than the fact that it was like 173 degrees most of the time, <laughs> it was actually a whole lot of fun. It looks like an amazing place to, to do some shooting. And I, I think Joe McNally was with you guys as well. Yeah. Yeah. The city wasn't quite hot enough. So Joe and I went out into the desert. <laughs> yeah. <stuff. laughs> now, I have to ask, just because I've been reading Joe's book, it's an amazing book. Is he as cool to hang out with on a shoot as, it, as you would guess from reading the book? You know, it, the book is exactly him speaking, and that's one of the things that's so cool about it. I, hands down, it's my favorite photo book I've ever read. The, the cool thing about it is it is exactly like you're hanging out 
you know, spending the afternoon with him. As someone who's hung out and spent an afternoon with him, uh, he's, you know, what you see is what you get. He's, he's funny and, and just like self-effacing and always just coming up with neat ideas. And he's like a 12-year-old kid trapped in a long-time professional's body. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> he seems like a really good guy to hang out with uh, and certainly learn a lot. Speaking about learning, what's sort of a day in the life of Strobus like nowadays? Well, let's see. Um, I, I'm awakened by my personal assistant at like 10:30 in the morning, and they bring the helicopter around so I can <laughs> go to this. <laughs> you know, I, I'm. You know, I tell people that my work day is a little bit like vacation, and my vacation day is a little bit like work. So I'm never really off. I'm always thinking about what I'm going to be doing a couple of weeks from now for the site. And it, it's cool. I spend a lot more time with my kids. I'm starting to spend more time shooting again, which is something that I really missed over the last year when I was primarily blogging. It's weird. Sometimes I just smack myself in the head and try to snap out of it. I, you know, I, as someone who was a photographer for 20 years and did nothing but shoot two or three assignments given to them five days a week, this is a, it's a strange existence, but it's also a very, very fun existence. So when you get to actually shooting now, what sorts of things are you doing? Are you doing self-assignments? Are you doing contracted work or things like that? A mixture. Um, I'm starting to shoot some stuff for the sun just basically because I miss shooting for them. But I'm also doing some things that, that I generate just with people that I happen to know. Like we're going to be shooting uh, a new like $3.2 million helicopter that the Howard County Police Department just picked up the other day. We're going to be shooting them out at sunset. And so I, I just went out and scouted, figuring out all the little places I could stick some SB-800 inside the helicopter to light it up so we can shoot it against sunset when it's flying. So I mean, nice. just, you know, in a sense, I'm like a kid in a candy store, but I'm not getting the assignments handed to me every day. So I'm, I'm having to learn how to be a self-idea-generating and completely self-motivated photographer, which is a very different skill set than a typical newspaper shooter, and, and there's definitely a learning curve involved in that. So you're still learning, even though you're, you're primarily a teacher nowadays. That's pretty cool. Oh, I, I learn. I think I probably learn more from doing this website and seeing all the stuff that comes upstream and the, the cool ideas people send me than any one person has learned just reading it. What are some of the things that just surprised you that you've learned since you started blogging? Well, you know, the sheer numbers of people that are out there that are interested in this stuff has kind of blown me away a little bit. And I look at every single picture that comes upstream on the Strobus Flickr pool, and that's well over 100,000 pictures at this point. So uh, in a sense, I'm sort of a picture editor every day, too. And it's just really neat to see people doing so much with so little gear-wise and just a lot of creativity in terms of uh, how they're producing the pictures. So, you know, I, it's hard for me to put my finger on any one thing. The, the one thing is just really the constant stream of creativity and ideas that are coming upstream. That's excellent. Oh, I noticed also that at one point you were blogging really, really heavily and you said you were kind of thinking about cutting back a little bit. Are you still kind of in that thought process? Have you made time to shoot some more then? I'm trying to find a balance. I think that I've gotten past the try to throw as much stuff out as fast as possible, which is like a typical kind of early bloggers mantra to build circulation. And what I'm trying to do now is to pull back a little bit and think more in terms of fewer posts that are that are higher quality. And the, the, the thing is to try to capture time in my life that I can use to actually go out and generate some projects, some picture projects that I can not only shoot for, for various people, but also have something to write about. So it's more finding a balance, I think, than, than having a particular posting schedule. That makes a lot of sense. Your community is, seems to be maturing with you, which is exciting. Tell us about the meetups. Oh, those those are off the hook. I mean, I, I've been involved in a couple of them. I, I try not to do too many of them because I really don't want to influence them because the cool thing about them is they're totally organic and self-funded by people. 
and it's very much peer-to-peer. There are some people who have taken on a little bit more of a leadership role, like in the Seattle meetups that are, that are just kind of going crazy now. But I think the coolest thing about it is you really don't have to have any resources other than someone with a willingness to organize a few people and maybe try to find some kind of space you can shoot in. Uh, you know, airplane hangars, parking garages, just, you know, wherever people can get a little space and kind of call it their studio for a couple hours. It's just a, it's a cool thing. Great. I've seen some of the videos that have come out of those meetups and they seem like a lot of fun. Well, you know, I was running the first few, but now they're coming down the pocket like two or three a week. Wow. So, you know, I, I think you'd probably have to light off a nuclear bomb on a light stand or something like that to get people's attention now with the videos because there are just so many of them coming down. But, you know, I certainly watch everyone that comes up on YouTube or some other channel with, that has a keyword, Strobus Meetup. I search for those every day. And I find myself wishing I could have been to most of them, frankly. Right. One thing that we wanted to speak with you about, that's probably, well, it is breaking news at this point. You have a new training DVD series that is, I guess, now available, isn't it? It just came out yesterday, as a matter of fact. It's new from the outside, but it's something I've been like living with and working on for, for several months now, better part of a year. So, you know, I kind of equate it to the extent that I can <laughs> to having a baby. And everybody's like, oh, look at this new baby. And, oh, I've been carrying it around for nine months. You know? <laughs> Uh, so it, it's, it's sort of like publishing a book. You know, all the work comes before it's published, and then it's published, and to everybody else it's new, and to you it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, this whole thing, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it was a lot of fun. I, I learned a lot, a lot of things that I didn't know and didn't think I would ever need to know working on a project like this. It's a wonderful product. I told you in an email that I've made it through about four of them. Actually, I'm halfway through the fifth one. I can't stop watching them, which is, <laughs> which is hard to believe because I'm having a hard time finding time in my day to even finish my real job. But, uh, <laughs> but this, well, you know, I, I, I am just undeniably attractive, obviously. Well, yeah, that's part of it. Absolutely. That, <laughs> yeah. No. I, I've been told I have a good face for radio actually. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's kind of, you know, the weird thing was, uh, you know, going through the editing process and you know, there's a lot of video in there and, and boy, you talk about somebody gets sick of looking at yourself after a while. Uh, <laughs> but you know, so, you know, I'm, I feel your pain right now. <laughs> it, it's eight DVDs, which is, I mean, that's just an awesome amount of content. And one thing that is striking to me is just how almost, you know, every every minute is just really, really useful information. So I think you did a really great job. I can't wait to see the reaction of, of all the people that, that have purchased it. It's going to be great. Well, I'm a little curious myself. I, mean, you know, I, I figure they'll either like it or there'll be people with pitchforks and torches <laughs> out in front of the house. I don't think that. you have to worry about that. But with eight, we figure minimum, you've got a nice set of coasters when it comes down to it. So. There you go. You can spread them around the, the <laughs> dining room table or whatever. Absolutely. No. <laughs> well, we appreciate you sending us a, a copy or two to check out uh, ahead of time. It's been a, a lot of fun. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. My wife is, has been watching them with me, so she appreciates oh, it, too. <laughs> she, uh, she must love you very much. <laughs> she, she's hanging out watching photo and tutorial DVDs yeah. with you. I, I was going to say, that's got to be sarcasm, isn't it? So A okay. little bit. A little bit. A little bit of sorry. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Just for people who are, are thinking about purchasing the DVDs, David, what are some of the highlights for you in terms of content? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. We, we started off with the idea of making a single DVD and, and what, what could we pack into two hours and, um, you know, and having a typical bells and whistles, like sort of like an educational DVD. And as we started developing it, that the problem wasn't what to put in. The problem was what to leave out. So we kind of we switched horses midstream and decided to go long form with it and, and uh, really to err on the side of content rather than like slick production. We had a certain amount of resources. Everything was self-funded, which means that like every week you're writing a check to someone you've never met before. You know, there were three digit checks and four digit checks mm. and, and five digit checks. So, so that's, that was my, I think, I think it was my least favorite part of the whole process. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
Well, <laughs> but, I can understand that. But basically what it is, is it's, it's an all-day lighting seminar, which is a bunch of people who are unhealthily obsessed with the idea of off-camera lighting, meeting up in a single hotel conference room for a day and just having a, kind of an organic discussion about it and talking about specific facets of lighting control. And, and we actually do some pictures in there in the afternoon. And that comprises four discs out of the eight. And there's another disc that is like a one-hour discussion that's just straight lighting gear, what you need, you know, how to hook up your flashes to your camera, what the different light modifiers do, etc. And then the last three discs are um, nine location shoots that we did over the course of the last few months. And they're specifically designed to illustrate different lighting styles. And while we were doing that, it's just like, it's basically real time. You know, we, we crunched it down a little bit, but I didn't want to crunch it down too much because the process is what's really important for people to see. I was wirelessly mic'd, thinking out loud, which is something that I normally do anyway. I walk around just kind of talking to myself sometimes. And as we're shooting, you know, every few pictures that we shoot, one will just pop up on the screen so you can see the progression as we're going, which is something that I think is particularly cool because you, you know what we're doing because we've got, you see the, where the lights are, you see where things are set, and just to see zeroing in on the kind of a picture we want to get, that zeroing in process is something that it's very hard to do in print but very organic to do. Um, in, in a kind of a multimedia format. I think you've done a wonderful job and it's really, really educational. So oh, cool, man. Thanks. Way to go, buddy. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about lighting since we haven't had you on the show for a while. What are some of the pieces of equipment that you've been experimenting with lately? Oh, wow. A, a couple of things. A couple of things I actually haven't written about either, which I will have probably by the time this comes out. First of all, Dave Honnell's uh, new grids are just fantastic. It's about time somebody married the idea of a grid spot, um, a commercially made grid spot with a small flash. I'm doing a couple of things that, that I hadn't done before. You, you think of umbrellas as being either a, a reflective umbrella or a shoot-through umbrella. I'm literally shooting through a shoot-through umbrella. I've got a hole cut in about halfway down on the bottom, and I'll get up in there and stick a lens through it. Oh, that's and cool. That, it almost makes the umbrella kind of look like a quasi kind of a ring light, but it's a little bit off axis. And it's especially good for filling in light directly from a soft camera axis when you're doing something hard with the other light. A friend of mine, Drew Gardner, who was with me out in uh, Dubai, you know, he's this real cheeky British guy. He's like, oh, you have to, you have to take that to Shamira and market it. It's fantastic. You can get like $100 a piece for this thing. Like, dude, it's a $20 umbrella, and I cut a hole and you in cut it. a hole in it, right? <laughs> yeah, and I put tape around it. So, you know, you know, I suppose if people are buying pieces of Tupperware for 60 bucks, That's you'd, right. <laughs> you'd probably buy a $20 umbrella with a hole cut in it for a for hundred, but everybody would laugh me out of the place. It's, it's such an easy thing to do that you know, I don't know why I didn't think of it sooner. That's great. You got my head going and I'm, I'm not thinking of the next question. <laughs> I've also been playing with a new set of barn doors that I was tipped off about about a reader. In fact, I'm blogging about those uh, next week. They're like $9.99. They're $15 shipped and they'll fit on a speed light. They're designed for those cheese balls, screw them into the, screw them into the light socket kind of flashes that 50,000 different manufacturers make. Right. Mm -hmm. but they will basically mount to an SB-800 or an SB-26 or a Canon flash, whatever. And you can design kind of that slit of light to come through in any way that you want. So, you know, that's that's kind of a new toy for me, and I'm, I'm playing with that right now, too. Well, that sounds pretty interesting. Always like barn doors. Why don't you tell our audience, like, why that's so useful? Well, uh, barn doors are basically little uh, gobos that fold down from each of four directions around a light source. So you can scrimp, you know, kind of clamp them down a little bit to make a tiny little horizontal slit or a vertical slit, or by rotating them, making anything in between. You can keep the light from going in just one direction or in three directions. You can basically constrict your beam of light in any customizable way that you want. And they fold down nice and small, too. So uh, it's a very old thing uh, for studio lights, but I'd never really kind of played with speed lights in barn doors before, so. I'm down for any kind of new toy that comes along like that, especially when they're nine ninety five each. Yeah, absolutely. 
speaking my language. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's really cool. I mean, one of my favorite parts of, of your video was actually the part where you talked about all the different ways of, of restricting light. You had a great quote in there. Actually, it was from Joe McNally, where he talked about making light interesting by removing it, or I forget the exact quote. He says, and, and I'm definitely quoting him on this, if you want to make something more interesting, don't light all of it. There you go. And the other analogy, is, you know, the, the, a mechanic will tell you it's, it's really cool for your car to be able to go, but it's more important for your car to be able to stop when it comes down to it. And that's kind of how I feel about light. You know, it's, it's the taking away light selectively that starts to make things really interesting. You know, umbrellas and softboxes, to me, they, they get boring very quickly. And not to say I don't use them all the time, because I do, but when I'm using a soft light now, I'm more likely to be using it to push some fill into some hard light that I've created. So, I, I, you know, I, I think the pendulum swings both ways. And, and right now I'm in a hard kind of restrictive lighting lighting vein. And, and you know, that'll probably change right. you know, Tuesday or whatever. So who knows? Uh, well, I think you're, you're absolutely right, though. Many of the people who ask us to look at their photos, one of the things we see all the time is over lighting. I mean, they just get the biggest, softest light source that they can, and then they blow a huge strobe into it or whatever, and it pretty much kicks out all the shadows that make it interesting in the first place. Right. You you know, it, me, am I talking about you? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's safe lighting, which is what attracts people to it, and it's predictable lighting, which for a lot of people is a very comforting thing. But, you know, I tell people that uh, when's the last time you walked into a room and you were just blown away by the ambient light, and the ambient light was coming from 45 degrees over to the right and 45 degrees up, and it was nice and soft. <laughs> You know, it, that's not what that's not what really turns you on. It'll be something, some shaft of light, warm colored light coming in at sunset, kind of a ray of light coming in from the back, coming towards you or something. And yet, when we have the ability to light to, to make any kind of light that we want, you know, we set up the flash and make some milk toast. You know, oh, here we go. That'll be <laughs> Forty-five degrees up. You know, that'll fill in some wrinkles. Uh, so I, I try to teach people to learn to see light more critically and think about how they could reproduce the light that really does it for them when they see it in an ambient mode. Now you got me thinking a little bit. Why don't you describe when you first arrive on a location? Since I know you're 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 really good at thinking on your feet. What are some of the things that you look for in a room right away? Are you looking at backgrounds or natural? What's your thought process when you first? Yeah, you're, you're going to laugh, but the first thing I typically do is set my camera on white on, on daylight white balance and take a picture on automatic and just look at the ambient light. It's going to tell me what color the ambient light is on the back of the screen, whether it's a normal fluorescent or some weird fluorescents that are closer to tungsten or whatever. And that's going to be my starting point for an exposure if I'm going to be using the ambient light as a component of, of the full lighting scheme. And then what I'll do is over and under expose that, that picture by a stop and two stops in each direction and see what it looks like there and see how um, I'm, I'm really thinking of the ambient light as being a building block in the lighting scheme. So I definitely want to move that exposure around a little bit and see where the, the best looking building block is. And, you know, a lot of times it's going to be a couple of stops underexposed and then you start building your light from there, but it might be four stops underexposed or it might be a stop overexposed. You're just airing the room out a little bit if you're trying to make kind of a funky airy kind of ethereal environment. So I walk in and I, you know, I put the camera on automatic and I take a picture just like my mom does when she walks into the room. But, but that's cool. a starting point. It's not an ending point. I, I like that. That's really neat. It, that helps you kind of place your subject and then all your artificial light. So before you even get any artificial light out, you're, you're deciding if there's anything in there that you can use. Absolutely. You know, I'm an opportunist. I'm an available light shooter. And by that, I mean any light that's available. Right. <laughs> and, and that's, well, that's, that's a common thing among lighting photographers. I think that way. Um, one thing I have started doing lately, you know, for the first 20 years of my professional life, I would always think about my key light and my primary light and designing that first and then coming in and filling it either with a particular shutter speed to allow the ambient to come in or, or a flash with an umbrella from the other side or whatever. 
Now I'm spending as much time designing my fill light and I do that first and then I lay my key light on top of it. And I found that the guys that, whose, whose pictures I really like, guys like uh, Peter Yang and guys like Dan Winters, uh, the people that just, you know, the light just doesn't call attention to itself. It's just awesome. They pay as much attention to their fill light as they do to their main light. And if I can design cool fill light from the beginning, um, I can set up ratios without even having a flash meter, something I don't carry around with me anymore. Chase Jarvis, a friend of mine out in Seattle, he, he just wrote a post on his blog that said, you know, flash meter, you're dead to me. <laughs> Which, you know, he, he words that kind of stuff a lot better than I can. But, uh, but if you lay in your fill light and you want to design a certain ratio, you just get the picture the way it looks right, and then you crank down the aperture however far you want that fill light to be below, and then come in and lay in your main light until that looks right. Very fast, very controllable, and you can make really sophisticated pictures when you're paying as much attention to your fill light and crafting that before you even come in and add your main light. And that's something that's really just kind of dawned on me in the last couple of months, to be honest. That sounds really cool. Yeah, I'm, I, I can't wait to re-listen to the show again so I can actually take notes through that. And... <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm, I'm on Benadryl right now. I, I, have, I have no idea what I did. I'm, I'm well, it's good on... stuff, David. Trust us. It was it's, brilliant. <laughs> uh, stuff should come in six-packs, frankly. Uh, it's a back rub in a bottle as far as I'm concerned. There you go. Let me ask you this question, kind of the piggyback question on that. Do you think about your background first or your subject matter first? Um, I'm always going looking for light that I can take advantage of and looking for backgrounds that I can take advantage of. If the light level is, you know, reasonable, I can create any kind of lighting scheme on any background that exists. So if I see a good background and, you know, it's not like F11 at a 9,000th of a second, I know I can control that and bring that background down and bring it into play by adding artificial light. So the first thing I'm looking for is really great natural light that might exist there that I can either use or use as a part of a lighting scheme. You know, but that surefire base hit is just finding a nice background. Shoot an ambient picture of it, drop it down a couple of stops, look at it, drop down a couple of stops, and then see how you want to build the light around there. So, so it, it's really kind of depending on what the room's offering you or wherever you're shooting, which way you go first, light or environment. And you really don't know until you get there, which is kind of the fun part of it. Excellent. Let's, let's talk a minute about the reason that we talk so much about portable strobes at, at your website, because I think there may be some folks who maybe aren't completely encultured yet at the strobus movement. Uh, what, what do you say to guys who are like, you know, I, I, I want to buy a big set of studio lights? Well, I say, look, Dave Hill, you don't need all that. <laughs> Dave's a friend of mine, and, and, and I, was, I was actually very, uh, very pleased to hear him like maybe throw a little bit of cold water on the idea that it's all about small strobes. It's not. It's whatever tools that you may happen to already own that can do the kind of light that you want to do. We caught a lot of flack, uh, for instance, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Joe and I are out in the desert, and he's got seven SB800s aimed at this uh, beautiful model out in the desert. And people say, geez, man, you could have done that with just one monoblock. Yeah, we'll just find like, the extension cord to plug it into. And, and, but, but, you know, it, it's, you, you dance with who brung you. You know, that's kind of the fun with this. You're making stone soup. My particular way of lighting and shooting really lends itself to speed lights. If I've got five or six small flashes, I can gang those together and make a very powerful flash when I need to. But I can also split them up. And if I've got to shoot somebody very quickly, I can have two or three setups in the same room, all ready to go, and just move them here, come over here for 15 seconds, come over there for 20 seconds, and they're out the door, and I've got to cover maybe two nice inside shots. Really hard to play King Solomon and, and chop that white lightning into three or four pieces if you need it. Uh, and if one of my flashes go down, 
I'm still a working photographer. You know, if seven of my flashes go down, I'm still a working photographer because I got eight. So there's no right or wrong about it. It's just, it's a choice that you make. And, and frankly, the little lights can get along very well with big lights. Uh, if I had two speed lights and I was looking to do more outdoor work, I might go and buy a battery-operated monoblock or something I could plug into a battery, like a like a White Lightning and a Vagabond or an Elecom Ranger or something like that, because that could always be my main light when I needed that big gun. And then I could use the smaller lights, you know, them or Pocket Wizard or whatever and use those as supporting lights. You know, if you're somebody like Dave Hill, you're working on those big production sets and, and you're going to wrap them around with like, you know, a, a ring light and 72 soft boxes and, and <laughs> that works that works well for what he's doing. So he's he's no more going to ditch all of his lights and go and buy speed lights than I am going to ditch my little donkey bag full of SB800s and go buy six Elantrom Rangers. So it's an approach. And if the people who are thinking, well, it's either this or that are kind of missing the point. It's what you have and how flexible you can be with it and, and what you can do with what you have. And, and maybe really what that next piece of gear that you need to think about buying, think about how you need to complement what you have. Do you need that ninth SB800? Maybe so, maybe not. Might make more sense for you to get a big gun, you know, spend five, 600 bucks on a, on a White Lightning or Alien Bees monoblock. I think that was very well said. I know that I've, I've begun to take my portable strobe even in the studio. Well, Ed and I have found that sometimes you just need a little touch of light somewhere. And it's a yep. lot easier to kind of stick it in there with a <laughs> with a strobe and a, li- a little Wayne sink or a pocket wizard or something like that that you can you can just grab that little accent where you need it. Well, I walked into a, a shoot Chase Jarvis was doing out in Dubai and he had, he had the pro photo lights, you know, that just pumping megawatt seconds through this big softbox over this set of acrobat dancers. And these guys were incredible. They just did not have to obey the law of gravity. I figured out a few <laughs> minutes into watching this. But Scott, his prime number one go to man was tucked off in a corner and he was just holding an SB 800 in his hand and he had it set up in uh, in a slave mode and he was just kissing a little bit of accent light specifically into part of the picture. And that sometimes that little accent light can totally make the difference between kind of a, a run of the mill lighting situation or lighting scheme and an inspired lighting scheme. So, mm-hmm. so even the guys that use the big flashes, you know, they're, they're really, uh, if they're thinking, they probably have a couple of those pocket lights ready to go and, and make something happen with no cords coming out of the microwave or whatever. Absolutely. Where they stuck it. Take our word for it from, from two guys that were trying to hold an, an Alien B monolight 10 feet out on a light stand oh, yeah. handheld so we could position it. Well, that was a mess. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Alien Bs in terms of how much light they deliver for how many dollars. I think it's amazing what Paul Buff has done with that company. And, there's, it, you know, he they sell more lights than anyone, from what I understand, and it's not even close down to number two. So he's clearly got something figured out, and it's working for a lot of people. But uh, but I don't think of them as A or B. You know, I, I think you think of A and B, whatever works for you. If, if you don't have it, it's kind of hard to use it. Absolutely. That's a really cool way of putting it. I have a question for you on your blog. Um, I've been kind of poking around here as we've been talking about it, and you have a, a really good idea on a blog post that I wanted to get your opinion on a little bit more. You have a post in here that you suggest keeping a lighting file. Now, what sorts of things do you keep in, in your lighting file? Well, you know, the way I look at it, I'm a 43-year-old man, so my memory is already going, and I see cool stuff all the time. You know, I, maybe I might be going through Wired Magazine, which is my very favorite visual magazine for just pulling, you know, pulling up ideas and inspiration, and I'm a married guy, too, so my wife is not going to let me keep 10 years of Wired Magazine sitting around the house. <laughs> so what I will do is just pull those, just rip those pictures right out and keep those in a file, and what I really try to do when I put them in is to, on the back, just put a little Post-it note or something, and 
reverse engineer the light the way that I saw it when I first noticed the picture, what I particularly liked about it. And again, I find more and more that when I'm pulling those pictures out, for instance, it's not about the main light. It's about how they finesse the fill to make the main light really kind of pop in a three-dimensional way. So to get back to what we were talking about earlier, that's the kind of stuff I'm noticing right now. You, You know, when you're going out with two flashes, there are only so many things that you can do. You can cross light somebody, you can put a front light on someone and then light the background, blah, blah, blah. But what I'm seeing that's really turned me on lately is people that take the ambient into account and then they'll push that down a couple of stops and then they'll lay in some fill that might come just right from on-camera axis, like that umbrella's right behind the photographer's head. And then they'll lay in that hard light coming from a different direction and just tweak that ratio in a way that just allows the hard light to still do its thing, but you're really controlling how how far down you fall when you go into the shadows and, and what the shadows look like. Because that umbrella does create some shadows that it, it just kind of pushes through and wraps around them. When I get into someone's lighting, I, I will go to their website and literally print out every picture that they've done that I really like. And for somebody, you know, that might be five or six pictures. Or for somebody like Dan Winters, it might be like 150 pictures. <laughs> And, and I'll reverse engineer it right there on the spot, print it out, and just put it into a little folder. Not that I want to go in there and try and ape his light, but there's always going to be some little technique that sticks in my mind. And I will go through and just kind of flip through that folder the day before I go shoot. And, and that just kind of sticks a lot of good ideas in your head. And it, it allows you to be a better problem solver because you're looking at a whole bunch of examples of solved problems. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it beats the heck out of original thought, you know. <laughs> no, you know but, but, you know, I want to go back to that because it's important not to say, well, man, I'm totally digging this guy's style of light, and I, I know I can recreate that. Well, you know, you probably can recreate it. You know, the guy sitting down at the guitar shop playing Stairway to Heaven <laughs> may be able to do exactly what they did uh, in Led Zeppelin, but there's not a whole lot of genius and creativity in reproducing Stairway to Heaven. You know, Stanley Jordan comes in and does Stairway to Heaven, you know, playing with both hands up on the neck of the guitar. Now you got something there. You're always looking to use it as a as a jumping off point, not as a as a focal point for imitation. Right. I was going to say that's usually where I end up. I'll see something I like a lot and I'll try and recreate it and I'll fail, but I'll like where I ended up anyway. Absolutely. You know, interesting failures are better than boring successes. I, I go out every day with that philosophy. Oh, I like that. And we're going to have to call that quote out, too. There you go. I have a question that's kind of technical because you said that you've been noticing fill light more lately. I know, you know, it's pretty easy to see where the key light is coming from. Oftentimes you can see the shadow. It's a lot more pronounced. What are some ways that you use to try to figure out where the fill light is placed? You know, what I'm seeing in fill light that I like lately, I used to light from the shadow side of the main light, bring the fill up that way. And what I really like now is lighting from as close to the camera axis as possible to push fill, and that may be an umbrella right behind me. It may be a ring light adapter. I've been using the Ray Flash ring flash adapter, which turns your little speed light into a ring flash. I like that a lot. And what that does is to is to push fill in that allows those areas on the far side of the main light on your subject to not receive fill light coming from the other side. And the way I see it, you know, we're used to seeing we're used to seeing scenes in which there's a main light and our eyes kind of take everything in, so the contrast range really just is figured out for us automatically. I like being able to figure out that contrast range automatically by pushing that fill light in right from the camera's axis. And I think that looks far more interesting than just going in and say, Well, you know, I'll put my I'll take my flash and bounce it off the wall on the shadow side and just dial it up to wherever it looks normal, wherever I think my paper can reproduce or whatever. Right. And, and 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 it fills, but it also leaves a lot of character to that light because it allows that shadow to exist on the far side of the person. You just get to control that shadow 
to whatever degree you want. You know, you, you can make it anything. You can make it a half stop down. You can make it four stops down. That's really cool. You, you, one other thing I heard about this new piece of equipment that it's only a hundred dollars, but it has a, it's like an umbrella with a hole in the middle on the, on the bottom <laughs> lower half. Right. You might want to check yeah. that out. <laughs> Patent pending. <laughs> yeah. Because if you see it, you'll never be able to figure out how I actually produce that's it. That's right. That's right. I, I literally, I drew a circle on the umbrella with a Sharpie. Oh, I, I, don't give everything away. Jeez. Well, you know, it's a, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm just an information sled. I figured out a long time ago, <laughs> but, but I, I, I drew, I drew, literally drew a circle on the umbrella and I cut it out. But here, here's the thing that really pushes it above and beyond that last 5% that, that makes it like professional lighting gear. I put black gaffers tape all around the hole so the yeah. nylon wouldn't run. That's perfect. See, that, that's the trade secret. And that's the kind of thing <laughs> that I would never, ever, you know, tell on a, on a show like this. You heard it here first. Thing, right. <laughs> And with it being black as well, that probably does something with uh, a cutting down on the flare going into the the lens itself, or or some other sort oh, of I'm reason. Sticking, I'm sticking the lens right through the hole, so it's like an umbrella with a lens sticking out of it. So, in terms of of of, can, of photographer subject interaction, you got low three you, scale of one <laughs> to ten. You, yeah. you pop out from behind the umbrella every now and then. Hey, you still here? You need walkie talkies uh, just to keep in touch. Right, with right. So yeah, it's, it's got a downside, and but you know what? What in a situation like that, what I do for for interaction is, as soon as I get it looking the way I like, I'll walk around and show it to them and say, "This is this is what I'm thinking. This is why I'm running and hide behind this umbrella. It's not because I'm trying to get away from you. It's because I'm trying to produce some really cool light." Do you uh, do and, you use a tripod much? You know, I I don't use a tripod to shoot unless I've got a really big area that I need to light, and that tripod becomes you know, my biggest light source because, because I, I can lock a camera down and, and I can bring the entire room up, even if it's the exposure might be a half second at 2.8 at ISO 400. I can light that entire room with shutter speed, bring it to down to maybe a stop below the correct exposure and then push a little bit of flash in there to light my subject. So when I think of a tripod, I think of it as being, that's my big gun. When I need to light a big area, I light it with a tripod. You just take the slow shutter speed and let the ambient soak in. Exactly. Um, one of the things that I, I wanted to, to ask you about was I know that you're a diehard Pocket Wizard fan. Yeah. But I also know that you've been experimenting with the new kit on the block, the radio popper system. They're, you know what? They work. They work. For me, they won't replace my Pocket Wizards. And I don't think that people who are, gonna using, who are using Pocket Wizards are going to toss them away because the radio poppers are out. But for the people who are shooting ETTL or CLS, you can just take that one flash that never would quite pick up the signal because it's always too far away, and you can just bridge it with the radios, and they work great. Now, my interest in them is not so much TTL as the ability to do high-speed sync on a long wireless basis. We were shooting in 8,000th of a second with Kevin King out in Phoenix. I spent the afternoon with him from you know, 125, 150 feet away. Wow. So that's cool. And you couldn't do that with a pocket wizard? Well, I could sync from 150 feet away very easily, but I couldn't have that information flow going between the camera and the flash that would allow them to work in a, in, you know, in a super high-speed sync mode. Got it. Kevin's done an amazing job of engineering something that everybody just looked at him straight in his face and said, man, it can't be done. I've got enough of an engineering background, not enough that where I'm ruining people's lives on a daily basis <laughs> with my designs, but, but enough to where I understand the problems that he had to solve. And you know, I want to tell you, that guy is a genius. I mean, there are a hundred times in, in the production where he just should have said, nah, I'm giving up. This is not going to work. But he just, he, he crossed every little obstacle that came to him and he just made it work. That's great. I was curious what you thought of that and whether it would find its way into your bag. 
Um, I'm playing with them right now, and for me, it would be a specialty thing. Not the kind of thing I'd use every day, but there are some situations where I really need to get in there and, and be able to pump some flash in at a higher speed sync and something where I couldn't use my D70S, which is a cool Nikon camera that will actually sync at any speed if it doesn't know there's a flash on it, which is one of the reasons I, I bought five of them over the last year. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, anytime anybody's getting rid of one, I'm right there. You know, 300 bucks? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> But, uh, but if I'm shooting with my D300 and I need to push some 8,000th of a second flash, that high-speed sync really knocks down a lot of what your flash can do. So you want the flash as close to the subject as possible. That allows you to back up with your camera and still go do uh, cool things with the light. He's definitely got a winner on his hands, no question about it. That's very cool. I, gotta ask, I have to ask this question. I happen to see you in USA Today, man. What's that all about? That is cool. Well, you know, I, I basically command national media attention. And I, I called up the publisher. And I, you know, it turns out the guy that wrote the article is actually one of my readers. So he uh, wow. he wanted he, he came and it, the, the thing that I really love about the article is Darbizer, a local photographer to the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, shoots a lot of sports. He's been at USA Today since, since I think it was like the uh, the British colonies today or something like that. <laughs> um, but, but he had, you know, you think, oh, USA Today photographer, they don't have to deal with crap. No, Dar had to shoot this assignment, and he had to do video from this assignment. Wow. It's just like he's dealing with it just like everybody else. So he basically comes up and says, I'm going to make you light yourself for this picture, and I'm going to videotape you while you're lighting yourself. Oh, that's classic. Oh, I thought that was just a a brilliant move in work avoidance. (laughs) That's that's like the highest thing I can say about a photographer. (laughs) So I'm, I'm going to make you do something, and I'm going to get out of two things by making you do it. That's pretty ingenious, actually. But that was fine. Yeah, no pressure on me or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was a hoot. We shot it in a local library. So all the all the people are like, who is this guy afterwards? But, but it's neat. amazing how many people read that newspaper. I got a lot of calls. Absolutely. That's great. And, and I think there were at least two or three of my coworkers that laid it on my desk and said, you, you might be interested in this. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I think I've talked to that guy before. That's cool. Yeah. So that, you know, that's something my mom is like, uh, she's like 63 years old. And, and, and that's a milestone that, that she can wrap her hands around. You know, that's like, you know, it's like, hey, the, my, my kid was in USA Today. That's a big deal, man. That's great. Uh, it, it was, it, it's cool to be on. The, it's, it, it's weird to be on the other side of the camera. You know, I, I see what kind of like torture I put people through. Now, so. <laughs> no offense, darling. <laughs> So how did you end up lighting yourself? Did you have uh, did you have your shows with you? I did. I told him I'd bring uh, three or four SB eight hundreds, and uh, and we're trying to do it like totally commando style, you know, and, and and not using the light stands, and and you know I stuck one on a on a change machine, and I stuck <laughs> another on a bookshelf, and uh, and then we stuck one inside the housing of the lamp on the desk, nice, just to make it you know kind of a cool light source that we could control and just slaved them all to, to his on-camera flash, which is just pointed up at the ceiling. Beautiful. Cool. Uh, and, and beautiful is a very strong word. <laughs> pictures of me in any form. But uh, <laughs> The article was really interesting, too. I thought that it, he, they did a really good job kind of highlighting what it, what it is that you're up to. And but I was curious, where are you thinking that you're going to go from here? Uh, you know, that, that's kind of the fun thing about this is it's very similar to newspapers. I really never know what the next week is going to bring me. And it's very improvisational. You know, I've been making it up as I go the entire time. So if, if you're looking for the big master plan, you know, I would tell you that I don't know if I'm gonna, what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow morning, you know, much less what I'm going to be doing in six months. So I'm just trying to keep a compass point of writing as if I were writing to myself as a 22-year-old because that's kind of my target 
audience and trying to do something that would be interesting to me as a 22-year-old when I was just trying to pull in as much information as I possibly could. Excellent. So there's, there's uh, the blog will continue for the foreseeable future, right? Uh, yeah. Until, well, really, when it comes down to it, no one can make you quit, you know? It's, 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 not like, uh, it's not like they can stop paying you or something, you know? It's, just, <laughs> right. it's, there, it's there whether you read it or not. You, you can't stop me. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> the insert evil laugh. <laughs> right, right. Well, there's so many people who really appreciate the work that you do, David, and uh, myself included. So we really appreciate you coming on and hanging out with us tonight. Oh, totally my pleasure. And thanks, guys. Well, that's all we have for this episode of Light Source, the brightest podcast on the internet. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other Light Source episodes at the website studiolighting.net. And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the Light Source Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash light source. You can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of. And as always, if you missed any of these links, our quick outro here, you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net. Till next time. Bye-bye. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.